In this psalm, David says nothing of his own glory, of his conquest of Jerusalem, of his defeat of Israel's enemies. Rather, he seeks to communicate to Solomon and to all the Jewish generations that would later say this psalm, what the truly righteous biblical monarch is supposed to seek. Not his own honor, but rather the glory of the God of Israel and the well-being of the people he leads. Welcome to Bible 365, episode 214, Psalms and Solomon. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. In his magnificent biography of John Adams, the historian David McCullough describes Adams passing away on July 4th, 1826. Quote, At Quincy, the roar of cannon grew louder as the hours passed, and in mid-afternoon a thunderstorm struck, the artillery of heaven, as would be said, to be followed by a gentle rain. Adams lay peacefully, his mind clear by all signs. Then late in the afternoon, according to several who were present in the room, he stirred and whispered clearly enough to be understood, Thomas Jefferson survives. Somewhat later, struggling for breath, he whispered to his granddaughter Susanna, Help me, child, help me, then lapsed into a final silence. At about 6.20, his heart stopped. John Adams was dead. As those present would remember ever after, there was a final clap of thunder that shook the house. The rain stopped and the last sun of the day broke through dark, low-hanging clouds, bursting forth with uncommon splendor at the moment of his exit. With a sky beautiful and grand beyond description, John Marston would write to John Quincy. By nightfall, the whole town knew, end quote. This part of the passing of John Adams, 50 years to the day of American independence, is well known, especially the fact that unbeknownst to Adams, Jefferson had himself died on the same day. But less well known is the memorial for himself that Adams had chosen to establish, a memorial that was not really about himself, which ultimately says a great deal about the profoundly biblical way that Adams saw his legacy, and which thereby allows us to better appreciate a psalm that is itself about legacy and ultimately immortality. The opening word of Psalm 72 is Lishlomo, of Solomon, which on its own could be interpreted as an indication that Solomon wrote the psalm. But it is clear from the text, and especially the psalm's final verse, that this is a psalm of David, written as he looked forward to the reign of Solomon his son. In the book of Chronicles, we meet the dying David, as he hands the throne over to Solomon before all Israel charging him with building the temple and with ruling over the people, though Solomon is at this moment but a boy. The last book of Hebrew scripture tells us, Furthermore, David the king said unto all the congregations, Solomon my son, whom alone God hath chosen, is yet young and tender, and the work is great, for the temple is not for man, but for the Lord God. David then adds, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, our fathers, keep this forever in the imagination of the thoughts of the heart of thy people, and prepare their heart unto thee. And give unto Solomon, my son, a perfect heart to keep thy commandments, thy testimonies, and thy statutes, and to do all these things, and to build the sanctuary for which I have made provision. And David said to all the congregation, Now bless the Lord your God. And all the congregation blessed the Lord God of their fathers, and bowed down their heads, and kneeled and bowed down to God and the king. And they sacrificed sacrifices unto the Lord, and offered burnt offerings unto the Lord. On the morrow after that day, even a thousand bullocks, a thousand rams, and a thousand lambs, with their drink offerings and sacrifices in abundance for all Israel, and did eat and drink before the Lord on that day with great gladness. And they made Solomon the son of David king the second time. Thus David speaks to the people and prays to God for his son. It is in this context that this psalm of David can be understood, for it is in this psalm, at this moment in his life, with his mortality staring him in the face and his heir assured, that David gives us a prayer to God for his son's future. And what is most important is that David thereby and therein reveals what he believes is the definition of a successful king 
and how Solomon should rule in order to continue David's legacy. David says, Give the king thy judgments, O God, and thy righteousness unto the king's son. He shall judge thy people with righteousness and thy poor with judgment. The mountains shall bring peace to the people on the little hills by righteousness. He shall judge the poor of the people. He shall save the children of the needy and shall break in pieces the oppressor. They shall fear thee as long as the sun and moon endure throughout all generations. He shall come down like rain upon the mown grass as showers that water the earth. In his days shall the righteous flourish and abundance of peace so long as the moon endureth. He shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river unto the ends of the earth. They that dwell in the wilderness shall bow before him and his enemies shall lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish and of the isles shall bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seva shall offer gifts. Let us note what is remarkable about the structure and substance of this psalm. David's hopes for his son speak of enormous power and influence, but it is not with this that David begins. Rather, he speaks of the obligation of the king to seek the well-being of those that have no one to speak for them. It was Maimonides who wrote that for the Torah, the king's heart is the heart of all the people, and it is this that David emphasizes as he instructs his son through his prayers on behalf of his son. Give the king thy judgments, O God, and thy righteousness unto the king's son. He shall judge thy people with righteousness and thy poor with judgment. When David then turns to the power that Solomon will achieve, understanding the fact that Solomon's kingdom will truly be mighty, he again immediately follows his mention of might with a reiteration of the moral requirements of the biblical monarch. He says, Yea, all kings shall fall down before him, all nations shall serve him, for he shall deliver the needy when he crieth, the poor also, and him that hath no helper. He shall spare the poor and needy, and shall save the souls of the needy. He shall redeem their soul from deceit and violence, and precious shall their blood be in his sight. Thus David describes the coming summit of Solomon's power, but he again immediately emphasizes power and might are not ends in themselves, and that the king can never forget the obligations of leadership. For much of the ancient world, such a shift from a verse describing kings falling down before Solomon to immediately afterward emphasizing how Solomon would deliver the needy must seem like a non sequitur, but not for ancient Israel. To use a term that is more modern, David in this psalm is giving an ethical will to Solomon. He's expressing his hopes and dreams for his son's success, but with a prayer that is also a warning. One is reminded here of Abigail Adams' letter to her son John Quincy, one that I quote often. Like David, Abigail was speaking to her continuity, and like David, she was addressing one who was likewise an enormously gifted child. Abigail wrote, quote, You are in possession of a natural good understanding and of spirits unbroken by adversity and untamed with care. Improve your understanding for acquiring useful knowledge and virtue, such as will render you an ornament to society, an honor to your country, and a blessing to your parents. Great learning and superior abilities, should you ever possess them, will be of little value and small estimation unless virtue, honor, truth, and integrity are added to them. Adhere to those religious sentiments and principles which were early instilled into your mind, and remember that you are accountable to your Maker for all your words and actions. End quote. And to this, Abigail Adams added words that David could also have said to Solomon, quote, You have entered early in life upon the great theater of the world, which is full of temptations and vice of every kind. End quote. And therein, lies a touch of tragedy hidden in the psalm itself. The great commentator Rashi notes that almost every verse in this psalm in David's prayer was fulfilled, except for one. Solomon did indeed achieve dominion, and he did acquire wisdom which he utilized on behalf of his subjects. But alas, as Rashi points out, one of the central verses in the psalm, a highlight of David's hopes, was not to be fully fulfilled. 
and that is, in his days shall the righteous flourish and abundance of peace so long as the moon endureth. For Solomon sinned, as we saw in our study of the book of Kings, his attempt to make an empire through which all the world would come to know the God who dwelled in the temple in Jerusalem, ultimately ended up leading to the importing of paganism into the sacred city, which in the end brought about not only the undoing of Solomon's empire, but also the division of the kingdom of Israel itself. At the same time, the very failure of Solomon to achieve everything that David wished for him also allows us to see this psalm as a very moving epitaph of sorts for David himself, one which teaches us thereby about ourselves and how we should look to our future. The story of Adams' death and of the phrase Thomas Jefferson survives is famous, but there is another element to the story that McCullough mentions that is largely unknown, one which I have always found particularly moving, and that is McCullough's description of the words that Adams chose to leave in description of his worldview. McCullough writes, quote, Unlike Jefferson, Adams had not composed his own epitaph. Jefferson, characteristically, had both designed the stone obelisk that was to mark his grave at Monticello and specified what was to be inscribed upon it, conspicuously making no mention of the fact that he had been governor of Virginia, minister to France, secretary of state, vice president of the United States, or president of the United States. It was his creative work that he wished most to be remembered for. Here was buried Thomas Jefferson, author of the Declaration of American Independence, of the Statute of Virginia for Religious Freedom, and father of the University of Virginia. Adams had, however, composed an inscription to be carved into the sarcophagus lid of Henry Adams, the first Adams to arrive in Massachusetts in 1638. This stone and several others, it read, have been placed in this yard by a great-great-grandson from a veneration of the piety, humility, simplicity, prudence, frugality, industry, and perseverance of his ancestors in hopes of recommending an affirmation of their virtues to their posterity. Adams, McCullough further writes, had chosen to say nothing of any of his own attainments, but rather to place himself as part of a continuum and to evoke those qualities of character that he had been raised on and that he had strived for so long to uphold. End quote. And this, in the end, is what we can say of the psalm written by David as he prepared for his own passing and for the passing of his scepter to his son. In this psalm, David says nothing of his own glory, of his conquest of Jerusalem, of his defeat of Israel's enemies. Rather, he seeks to communicate to Solomon and to all the Jewish generations that would later say this psalm, what the truly righteous biblical monarch is supposed to seek, not his own honor, but rather the glory of the God of Israel and the well-being of the people he leads. Thus, the words with which David brings this prayer for his son to a close highlight why David remains the royal standard for Israel. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who only doeth wondrous things, and blessed be his glorious name forever, and let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. This is Mayor Soloveitchik, looking forward to learning together next week. Signing off.